Acts chapter 17. We are coming to Thessalonica. We followed the whole journey up here to Troas. Troas, it seems that Paul picks up Luke over in Neapolis and then to Philippi. Uh, from Philippi last week, <clears throat> he, he is beaten. He's in prison with Silas. Their backs are flayed open. And uh, Paul then leaves from Philippi. It says he goes past Amphipolis, uh, Apollonia, and he comes to Thessalonica. See us there? Thessalonica. Um, notice you've got a bright new picture over here. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, same thing here to Troas, to Philippi. He's there where he's beaten. He's imprisoned. Most scholars feel he, he spent about a year there. And then he goes through uh, Apollonia and Phippolis, and he comes to Thessalonica there. Um, about a hundred miles on foot to Thessalonica, and he's not traveling real well. He's beat, literally. You know, his frame is weak, and he's leaving. He passes by Amphipolis and Apollonia because he wants to get to the, the centers where the population are. He's learning as he's moving. He cares about those other places, and the gospel's going to spread to those other places. But Paul is learning. He wants, wants to get to the capitals. He'll get to Athens, then he'll get to Corinth, He'll get to Ephesus, and the Word of God will be spreading out from all these places. We're going to read what he says about Thessalonica tonight. He'll go then to Ephesus, and the Word of God spreads from there, the Thyatires and Sardes, and, you know, you go through the churches. We know Laodicea, Philadelphia. We know from uh, the book of Revelation, the Word of God spreads out from all of those places. So it tells us here, it says, Now when they had passed through... Amphipolis, that's about 36 miles to there, and then 32 more miles to Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, which is 37 more miles, over 100 miles in one verse, as we're going through. It says there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul, making this journey, we're told in Philippians... He just left Philippi, and it's a church that he loves throughout his ministry. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my necessity. So he says, Twice while he's in Thessalonica, an offering will come from Philippi. And we're assuming that Timothy brought that because it seems that Luke remains in Philippi. We're going to hear about Timothy here again with Paul. And then when Paul goes to Berea from here, it seems that Timothy will stay back as he then goes to Athens. So Paul here making this journey, coming to Thessalonica. Um, he's going to be there three Sabbaths. Um, <clears throat> it is the capital of that province of Macedonia. Within a short, short time, it will be the capital of the entire province, divided into four provinces at this point. Thessalonica will be the, the capital of all of Macedonia. 
it is Solonika today. The Thess is gone. We know it as Thessalonica, Thessalonians, Thessalonica. Um, and large population today. It was one of the largest populations then. And because of its access to the sea, it was equivalent with Antioch of Syria and Caesarea on the coast uh, in Israel in regards to traveling and shipping and so forth. Ephesus was on the sea there, Corinth. This was an important port. <clears throat> and Paul says there in First Thessalonians, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. We're going to see there's trouble there. With joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. The reason for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how that you had turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, great news, from the wrath to come. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. So he gives us some insight in here into what he does. He's, he goes into the synagogue. <clears throat> it doesn't seem there was a synagogue in Amphipolis or Apollonia, so he gets to Thessalonica where there's a synagogue. Thessalonica by this time, because of the shipping and everything, had become a city where the wealthy grew wealthier and the middle and poor class were suppressed, if you've ever heard of such a thing. And because of that, there was great corruption. And the, the, the wealthier took the gods of Thessalonica to themselves. It was the pantheon of Greek gods again. But Paul said, you turn from idols to serve the true and the living God. So as he comes there into the synagogue, uh, <clears throat> there were... A number of poorer Thessalonians who he's going to have to encourage them to work as he writes to them. Just, you know, don't stand around looking up in the sky waiting for Jesus. You know, if you, if you don't work, you don't eat and so forth. Because they are so discouraged and so impoverished by the ruling class that Paul comes to them with the gospel and they're in the synagogue. Many of the Greek women, because they're all of a sudden here's a God, this is a monotheist religion, and women are to be respected and to have a place, and it's wrong for the husband to commit adultery. All of these things were dear to the women in the culture who were thinking because the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods used them as chattel. They, you did whatever you wanted with your wife or your concubine or a harlot. And all of a sudden the women are here. So there's a number of prominent women, probably some of them successful in business. And there's a whole number of the Greeks that come to faith and it tells us here that Paul goes into, and Silas, the synagogue, 
in verse 1 of the Jews. Verse 2 says, And Paul, now notice, as his manner was, he loved to do this because when he got into the synagogue, he was already in a place that believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God. You know, he had to convince Greeks and pagans that the Scripture was the Word of God. That's a foregone conclusion when he comes into the synagogue. And you remember, as he writes his second letter to Timothy, he reminds him there, he says, "...continue in the things that thou hast learned, and hast been assured, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament." which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he says, he says, look, the Old Testament is everything you need to make you wise unto salvation. So he goes into the synagogues, this you know, brilliant man from the school of Gamaliel, Gamaliel in, in Jerusalem, and Silas, who was one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So obviously there's great openness as they initially encounter these men, Paul and Silas. So as his manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now it's interesting, he, he reasoned. He wants their faith to be a reasonable faith. You know, God wants our faith to be a reasonable faith, not unreasonable. He wants you to know why you believe what you believe. He wants you to know where the Scripture addresses what you believe. There is the Logos, the written Word of God. And then in the Scripture, there's Rhema, the specific verses that deal with what you might be going through in God's living Word. And he he says here that it was his custom. He went in and for three Sabbaths, so we're looking at least probably at least 21 days, three Sabbaths, He reasoned with them out of the Scripture. That's his basis. That's where he starts uh, with, with his ministry. It says, opening, what he does with the Scripture is opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach is Christ. He's the Messiah, this Jesus I'm preaching. So it says, opening, we find that phrase um, in the end of Luke where it says, And they said to one another, the two on the road to Emmaus, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened unto us the Scripture? That's the only other place in the New Testament where that word open is used to the regards of the scripture. And it says those two guys on the road to Emmaus said it was Jesus that opened to us the scripture. The word open in the Greek means to open thoroughly. Of course, when Jesus opens the scripture, it's opened thoroughly. But here is the same idea. It's the same word used here that Paul was opening thoroughly the scripture. No doubt. Isaiah 53, no doubt Zechariah 10, 12, no doubt Psalm 22, no doubt you go through the Old Testament. He's opening thoroughly to them. And then it says alleging, which is made up of two Greek words, and it means to lay alongside. So he was 
opening thoroughly the Old Testament and then laying alongside of this Jesus of Nazareth that he's preaching the Old Testament verses, proving then that the Old Testament scripture said that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. So he's taking those Old Testament truths. He wants them to have a reasonable faith. And he's showing out of the Old Testament prophecy. These things were spoken 500 years ago, 700 years ago, a thousand years ago, asserting that, yes, Messiah would come, but it wasn't Messiah just the way the Jews perceived. Yes, he's going to be a great king. Yes, he's going to rule over the earth, but he came initially, he's teaching them here, to be crucified and to rise again. And he says, this Jesus that I preach unto you is, in fact, he says, the Messiah. This is the Christ. Now, the remarkable thing, he's going to be accused here in Thessalonica of saying that there's another king. They're going to bring that against him. The interesting thing, when it says that down in verse 7, it's another heteron, heteros. It's a king of a different kind. He's not saying, Alos, this is the same kind of king as Caesar, and this guy I'm preaching is going to take over the Roman Empire. This is a different kind of king that he's speaking. Look, he's in the synagogue there for three Sabbaths. How long was he in Thessalonica? Scholars go back and forth. We're not sure. Uh, Linsky, the old German grammarist, says, because it's an eridist here, it's historical that he, we know for sure he was there for three weeks. Was he there longer? That's just something for scholars to argue about. We don't know. But in three weeks, there's a multitude of people that believe he is opening the scripture to them and alleging these things about Christ. And of course, it gave rise to, it says, their reasoning with their question. Well, well, if Christ died, if this Jesus you're telling us is the Christ, and he rose again from the dead, what about his kingdom? What about him ruling the world and so forth? And as we read First and Second Thessalonians, we realize that then Paul opened to them the rest of the story, and every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with what Paul said to them about the return of Christ, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, the end of chapter 1, the end of chapter 2, he, he says... For what is our hope or our joy or our crown or rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Of course, you know, the end of chapter 3, he talks about the fact that Christ is coming to the end, that he might establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Chapter 4, of course, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who sleep, they were suffering in Thessalonica. He says, Christ is coming again. We're going to be caught up. Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, he says, you know, have no need that I run unto you concerning, you know, times and seasons. You yourselves know perfectly well that the Lord is coming as a day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they're saying peace and safety, then suddenly...
sudden destruction is going to come, but it's not going to fall on you like it is on those who are asleep. He says you're awake in regards to these things. Second Thessalonians, he talks about the Antichrist. He talks about the tribulation. You know, this is important to me because we know for sure he's got these people 21 days. How much longer? We're not sure. But we hear all kinds of people in the church today, usually from their ivory towers, with their credentials nailed to the wall. I don't know, prophecy doesn't have anything to do with character development. I don't think prophecy is that important. Well, I don't care what you think. <laughs> Paul, it says here, by the Holy Spirit taught the word, and the Holy Spirit no doubt thought it was important enough to teach to a brand new baby church Three weeks old for sure, maybe five weeks before he leaves, we don't know. It was important for them to know about the blessed hope. And it does affect your character because John's going to say, any man who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. If you and I tonight really believe that the trumpet's going to blow, look, you want, turn the news on, the news should be telling you more than what's going on in the Ukraine. The news should be telling you Jesus is coming. When you see these things, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. See that your heart is not troubled. I'm thinking that's easy for you to say, Lord. He says, of these things must be. The world is, is in labor pains, he says. It's like a woman in travail. We can see that. It's like a cauldron that's boiling over with all kinds of things. Paul communicated that to these Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, this brand new baby church. He took them into our blessed hope and the return of Christ and the blast of the trumpet being caught up to meet, you know, the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He tells us we're not of the night. He tells the, these Thessalonians, we're to be awake. It's not to overtake us. We're to be waiting. Paul expected the coming of the Lord in his day. And then, because he, he says, then we, including himself, personal pronoun, which are alive, shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So Paul thought this was important. It's important for new Christians to understand this Christ, who was crucified, he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again the third day. Why did he rise again? What now? Well, he ascended into heaven, and he's returning. Paul taught the Corinthians when they took, you know, the Lord's Supper when they had communion. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. That even in the communion, the return of Christ was part of what they believed and hoped for as they partook of the bread and the cup. So this remarkable entrance into Thessalonica which is the capital of this region, the governor of all of Macedonia lived there. And as Paul comes in, it says he's preaching this Christ to them. And the book of Thessalonians tells us how it opened up and the word of God spread from there. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. They went back and forth working with them. And of the devout Greeks, devout Greeks were those who came to the Jewish faith in the synagogue of the devout Greeks. A, look at what it says, a great multitude. And of the chief women of the city, not a few, which means a lot. 
uh, King James, not a few. There's a great multitude now that come to faith, we're told. And it says in verse 5, but the Jews, which believe not, now look, moved with envy. Isn't that interesting? People, how many you know, you witness to them, you talk to them, but what drives them is jealousy. It's a base motive. And that motive of envy is what causes them to cause persecution here because they're envious because you seem to genuinely be happy. You seem to genuinely believe songs. You're singing those stupid songs all the time. You send out those Jesus Christmas cards all the time. You know, there's an envy in that. Well, the Catholic church is good enough. You know, this church is good. This is good enough. That's good enough. And they're envious of you. The Bible says you're living epistles. You alone are the light of the world. You alone are the salt of the earth. And just like in their synagogues amongst our quote-unquote Christian relatives and friends, they're envious of us. And because they're envious, they've got to put pressure on us. They want to see us mess up. They rejoice when you blow your cool. It makes them really happy. Because they think then, see, that proves you really don't believe what you say you believe. These Jews are moved with envy and look what it says. I love King James. And they took them certain lewd fellows. You can just translate that thugs. They took with them certain lewd fellows of the, of the baser sort. So there's thugs that are not of the baser sort. These are thugs of the baser sort. And they gather the company, crowd, and they set all the city in an uproar. And they assaulted the house of Jason. Evidently, there's a home church there. And sought to bring them out to the people. So they go looking for Paul and Silas. They knew he'd be in the house of Jason. Jason is a Greek name, but it is from the Hebrew, um, Yeshua. It, you know, of the Hebrew, it comes from that root uh, possibly, then we believe a man who got saved in the synagogue, who now has the church in his house. Where you hear about Jason again in the act of Romans 16, he doesn't disappear. They that found them, they found them not. So it says what they did then was they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city. And because this is the, the governor of Mas all of Macedonia is there, the, the rulers of the cities is very important, crying, these that have turned the world upside down. Now, that wasn't true. They turned it right side up. The world is already upside down, if you haven't noticed. But the idea is they've turned the world as the inhabited world of humanity. They've turned the inhabited world upside down. However you want to do that, you think, what a compliment is that? Two guys, two guys yielded to the Holy Spirit, not considering their own lives precious, come into a metropolis, a huge area, and two guys yielded to the Holy Spirit, having Jesus as their Lord, turn the world upside down. How remarkable. And of course, we saw Spurgeon, we saw Whitfield, we see so many through the 
the centuries, you know, the Moravians and so forth. But it says, they turned the world, these have turned the world upside down, and they are come here also. So this is a serious charge because Thessalonica, being the Roman capital of the province, they know that all the way back to Augustus, laws had been passed. You can't claim that somebody else is king. No religion is allowed that leads you away from Caesar to another king. These things are all we find these things. All the archaeologists find these inscriptions all the time. So it says they came here to the rulers, um, politarches it is, and the interesting thing about that word is, for centuries, Bible critics said there's no such word in the Greek. This is something Luke made up because he wanted to blow the story out of proportion. And in the last 80 years, they found 70 inscriptions of that word, three quarters of them in Macedonia, and over half of them in Thessalonica. They found it in Alexandria and Egypt and so forth. The archaeologist Spade always proves that the Bible is true if you give it some time. So these rulers are Roman rulers. The whole city comes crying. These men have turned the inhabited world upside down. And they're going to be very different than the rulers in Philippi. In Philippi, all they had to hear, this guy cast a demon out of the girl, he's taken away our prophet. They take Paul and Silas and beat them with rods there, which they had no right to do. And after they find out they're Roman citizens, they beg them to leave because they could be put to death for, for beating Roman citizens with rods, which worked to Paul's good because he established there the fact, don't you mess with the church here. The Roman citizens in this town. Now here, the Roman rulers are way more cautious than they were in Philippi. They're listening to this big uproar in this crowd. And it says, they've come here also to turn the world upside down, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, this one Jesus. This is 20 years after the resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection, by the way. <clears throat> that there's another king, but it's header on there. It's a king of a different kind. So even his critics are admitting this king they're talking about is different than an earthly king. They're saying there's this another king, which we hear all about through First and Second Thessalonians, the returning king, the king that's going to come and destroy the Antichrist, the king that's coming for his church in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and so forth. They've turned the world upside down and they're giving this, they're against the decrees of Caesar that there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers, that's our word again, rulers, of the city when they heard of these things. And then it says, when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, then 
they let them go. So these Roman rulers, rather than have this turn into a lynch mob, what they did was they took security of Jason. He had to pay a bond. It cost him money. He had to give money to the civil authorities. And with that, a promise that he's not causing an uproar. He's not causing trouble. He's not doing this. So he had to secure this bond by paying the rulers. And these rulers are way more civil than those in Philippi. And when they had taken a bond, a security of Jason and of the other, then they let them go. And the brethren immediately then sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, whom coming there, guess what they did? They went into the synagogue. These guys are just, you know, Berea is 50 miles now from Thessalonica. It is 50 miles from uh, across the here. We're going to Thessalonica, and it's 50 miles then to Berea, right there, okay? This is, again, overland walking by foot, Thessalonica to Berea, 50 miles there to, in that part of the journey. So they make that journey. We just read about it on the page. This, this is really, really journeying. So they sent away Paul and Silas by night. Now look, Paul and Silas are learning. Paul's not cowardly at all, but he's understanding what happened in Philippi was incredible. The, the multitude that's believed in Thessalonica, rather than bringing pressure on them, him and Silas are now, they're willing to move on to the next field of harvest. They're beginning to understand how all of this is rolling out. So it says when they when they got to the the to um, Berea when they end up there they end into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and then searched the scripture daily whether those things were so. So as they head into the synagogue then in Berea, it says they're more noble there. It's the only time in the New Testament that word is used. There's, it's nobility. You and I kind of know what nobility can be royalty. Somebody who's noble is of a higher character. But, but what are the character traits of nobility in this scene? It is that they took the time to search the scripture so they could know for themselves whether what Paul and Silas were saying is true. There's, there's a nobleness about that. You're not just listening like, you know, following like, a, you know, somebody without your own mind. On the other hand, you're not making false accusation. You're not screaming that it's not true, but you're not just swallowing the pill saying it is true. It says there was a nobility about the way they acted. It says they heard the scripture with a ready mind. They listened. They were open. Yeah, we know this. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, and they listened with a, a willingness, with a ready mind, it says. And then they searched the scriptures themselves daily, as literally day by day, whether those things were so. Now look, 
There were some copies of Scripture there in the synagogue. Maybe some of the wealthy people had a copy of the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament for themselves. But they had a gathering group. So it wasn't like they went to Blue Letter Bible on their iPhone. It wasn't like everybody had a Bible in their glove compartment. When they heard this, they had to be meeting together in different places where there were copies and the, or back in the synagogue with the man who was in charge of the synagogue, the ruler, saying, let's go back here and look at this again. Let's look at Isaiah 53 again. Go back here. Does it really say this? What is this? You know, go back and look at this. And most of them obviously familiar with Greek, not with Hebrew, uh, whether the ruler of the synagogue himself was was familiar with Hebrew and had a, a Hebrew scroll in the synagogue, we don't know. Certainly they had copies of the Septuagint. So they went and they searched the scripture day by day. And we know Paul was opening and alleging, opening thoroughly, laying then alongside of the pictures of Messiah. He's making the verses that give rise to that. And I think, you know, look, these Bereans had no idea. You know, we have bookstores called the, the, you know, the Berean bookstore. We hear of the Berean call. You know, they have no idea that for 2,000 years in church history, the church is going to realize the nobler way to, to come to the scriptures is like the Bereans. To come and search. You all should be Bereans. Don't believe anything I say. Acts 17.11 is your verse. Joe said this. He used to be a druggie. We better look in the scripture ourselves to see what it says. And if I tell you, let's go in the, in the parking lot, the mothership's coming down from, uh, you know, and we're all going to get on board and leave in a UFO, then you just throw me out of here. You should be Bereans. I have great freedom to come and open the scripture. It's your responsibility to test those things, to search those things and see if they're true or not. And that's a sign of a noble character on your part. You're not saying no, but you're not just mindlessly embracing things either. You're going to the scripture yourself, searching these things out. So important here as we look at this. And look, Paul's not insecure about it. He's glad they're doing it. He wishes that would happen in every synagogue that he went to. He's not saying, you're supposed to believe me, I'm an apostle. No, no, no. He understands the word of God takes precedent over his apostolic gift. You know, Peter would tell us, you know, look, we were there in the Holy Mount with him. And we heard the voice of Almighty God as he spoke. But we have now a more sure word of prophecy unto which you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. He said, we have this word of scripture now, which is more sure than spiritual experience itself. And the New Testament establishes that throughout word of God. It bears fruit. Here we are. Here we are. And you guys should take the owner, the responsibility in your lives, with your children, with your family, to search the scriptures and know why certain things are said in the scripture and what's true 
about those things. It says, therefore, look, because they searched the scripture, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, again, not a few. So there's a big moving of the Spirit again here relative to the Word of God. And, and this verse gives us great security. We have the right to search the Scripture. Because look, you turn on the TV, quote-unquote Christian television, you're going to hear everything from outer space to Gehenna, you know. I mean, you're going to hear them there trying to get in your wallet. Triple tie Sunday. You need to do this. You need to fork it over. The, the God's kingdom's getting ready to file chapter 11. If you don't give, when you get to heaven, the angels are all going to look, oh, you're the guy who let things go underwater, huh? Into the red. You know, people, and, and they're using the scripture, they're using, look, I know. More than I want to know about all of that. I've seen papers. I've seen documents. I've seen... And sometimes what they'll do is they'll find an area and they'll say, okay, the demographic here is people give more if we put up a picture of a kid in a wheelchair here than if we do put up a picture in somebody in a halfway house. And they'll specifically work different neighborhoods in different areas by what they know draws more money out of people. But Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he's going to say, be gone. I never, ever knew you. The great, you know, the great challenge and security you and I have is when we hear anybody say anything, we can search the scripture to see if those things are true. We don't have to just believe it. Therefore, many of them believed also of the honorable women, which were Greeks who had been converted, and of men, not a few. And when the Jews of Thessalonica had no knowledge that the word of God was also being preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the people. doesn't say, tell us where they brought the thugs with them. They probably did. <clears throat> and then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode still. So as Paul now leaves... This church in Berea is blossoming, and Paul leaves Timothy, who had come from Philippi, no doubt brought the offering that we read about in Philippians. Um, Paul then moves on to get out of town, but Silas and Timothy stay back there um, in Berea. Paul now is going to make a journey of over 200 miles to Athens, um, it says he went as far as to the sea. Then scholars argued, did he go overland to Athens or did he take the, 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 the boat to Athens, which he could have easily. Uh, I don't know why Luke would happen to mention that he went to the sea if, if it wasn't uh, to board a ship. Um, he's alone and the Ignatian way 
the road that goes from Byzantium is all the way up here. It goes from all the way from Byzantium past the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea. When Paul leaves Thessalonica to go south, he leaves the Ignatian Way. And when you left that paved Roman road, your life was in danger. So no doubt there were many believers from Thessalonica that accompanied him to get him to Berea. Now again, he's leaving Berea. The Ignatian Way is not there. He's traveling on back roads. It's dangerous. It would seem then that he boards ship and goes from there to Athens over 200 miles. You see us there boarding the ship going down here to Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he'll say then that he wants Timothy and Silas to come and catch up with him and meet him there in Athens. But it tells us here in verse 14, and then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, which King James can mean that's what happened. Some try to say it means, well, as it were, he's trying to fool them into thinking he's taking a ship, which just seems inconsistent with anything we, we do in our study. As far as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still in Berea. There's a new church there, and it says there's not just a few, there's a lot of people that believed. And they conducted Paul and brought him to Athens. So it seems like they sent someone with him to travel with him so that he was not alone. They that conducted Paul brought him to Athens and then receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus to come to him with all speed than those who conducted him to Athens departed. Now, it's interesting, we're told in Acts chapter 20, in verse 4, it says, And there accompanied him, Paul, into Asia, Sopater of Berea. So now he's traveling. When it says they accompanied him to Athens from Berea, no doubt Sopater was part of that group. It says, And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trifemus, these all going tarried with us at Troas. So we're going to see from all of these areas that he went, he's picking up comrades who travel with him as he goes. And there, there are those of Thessalonica, those of Berea and so forth that travel with Paul. We don't have enough time to go to Athens tonight. Uh, next week we'll go to Athens, a remarkable portion of the scripture for sure. 3,000 altars or temples and or temples in Athens. And Paul doesn't go there as a tourist. He goes there as a missionary. And uh, very remarkable, you would think of the impressions on his heart as he comes there, because it seems like much tougher ground plowing there. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, 
which effectually worketh also in you that believed. So Paul says of the Thessalonians, you, you received what we spoke as, in fact, what it is, as the word of God. And then he tells us that the word of God effectually worketh in you that believe. So, you know, what we're finding here in these journeys as we follow Paul, he goes into an environment where he can open the scripture. Athens is not so much like that. Here he goes to a synagogue tonight in Thessalonica, goes to a synagogue in Berea. The Old Testament is already embraced. That's why it says to the Jew first and the Gentile. And he goes and he opens the scripture. He reasons with them, opening and, and laying alongside of the truths of Scripture, the truth about Christ, then answering the questions. It says, you know, well, what, well, if he's the Messiah, what about his kingdom? And then he's able to say to them, he is. He ascended. He's returning. Right now the gospel is spreading around the world. Jew and Gentile are being gathered in. The partition wall is being broken down. But he's going to come again. And, and he, he saved us from the wrath to come. He's delivered us. He's coming with his angels, Second Thessalonians, in power. So these things about the return of Christ are woven into the hearts and minds of a brand new baby church in Thessalonica and no doubt in Berea as well. Certainly, you know, we have seen, and I've been around churches in other countries, where you have a revival, brand new believers in Jordan, in Muslim countries, in different places around the world, and they get saved. And one of the, when there's revival, one of the first things they believe is Jesus is coming again. You almost don't have to tell them. They get saved. As soon as they start to read the Bible, they realize he's coming again. He's coming back, isn't he? Yes, he is. I remember talking to these pastors. I was in... Uh, Ziegen, Germany, at a pastor's conference, these several pastors were there from Jordan who had been born and raised Muslim. And through a revival there, they had turned to Christ and they were pastoring a church. They had no idea what they were doing. They just started teaching the Bible. And he said, we would sing worship songs, but they were Hebrew worship songs we learned from the Jews. We didn't know the words. We didn't know we were singing it because it was in Hebrew, but we sang it. We worshiped. And they just said, you know, if we finally learned what some of those words meant, and we were overwhelmed with the beauty and, uh, and talked about worshiping Christ. And he said, he said, you know, in the Muslim world, we believe that the gospel spread into Europe, like our study. From Europe, it spread to the New World, North and South America. From the New World, it spread to Asia, to Japan, and to China. And from there, it's now spread into the Muslim world. And it's getting ready to come all the way back. And he said, we know there are Jews in Israel jealous over us because we're singing their songs and we know what they mean. And he said, we believe as Muslim believers now that the gospel has circumvented the entire globe and come back to Israel, that the rapture is ready to happen. I just said... Yeah, I hope you guys are right. I believe, you know, and, and they, they learned this just from studying the scripture, from looking at what the word of God said. And Paul, again, so, so deliberate in teaching new believers about their blessed hope. Okay, Christ died for us. Okay, we're forgiven. Okay, he rose from the dead. Okay, we, we have that hope of life after death. Uh, what now? What about everything it said about his kingdom? What about everything it says about him ruling over the nation? What about? Well, he is. He's coming again. 
And this will be the context that he comes in. This will be the days that he comes in. This is what it will look like in the days that he's come. This will be the deception that comes in regards to the Antichrist. You know, and, and it seems to say there's going to be one more great opportunity. It says he's going to give them over to believe the lie, definite article, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. This is the beginning of the tribulation. It's the Antichrist. It seems to say right before the Antichrist comes to power, there's going to be one more great offer. And because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, then they're given over to believe the lie. There's a great deception that will overtake the world. So thank goodness this evening we're here. We can open the scripture. Don't believe anything I say, please. I, I ruined a lot of my dendrites and a lot of my connections up there years ago. Uh, you need to check the scriptures, see if the things we're studying and talking about are true. You need to have your own systematic theology and know why you believe what you believe and why you believe that. And all of that needs to lend itself to your own personal relationship with Jesus, which is, after all, the most profound theology there is. A living relationship with the living Savior who rose from the dead and is coming again. Amen? Amen. Okay. Read ahead next week. If the Lord tarries, we'll go to Athens. Um, if we don't, you can talk to the Athenians in heaven yourself. <laughs> but Paul's going to go to Athens. Look, as you read through, kind of read ahead. Understand this. Paul, Athens is at least 80 years after its, its greatness, its pinnacle at this point. It's declining. And Paul doesn't go to Athens to restore Athens. He goes to Athens to save Athenians. And too much of the church is completely given over to restore America's greatness. I understand, but our calling is to save Americans, not to save America. Save Americans. There's people all around us who don't know Christ. Yes, we should care about our country. Again, <clears throat> Phil Robertson, he's got a new book out to him, uh, Duck Dynasty, one of my favorite prophets. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that way. <clears throat> he said, the problem with America is simple. There's more corrupt than there are converted. He said, that's not Hollywood's fault. That's not Washington's fault. That's not the music industry's fault. That's the church's fault, he said. If the, he said, sinners are doing a good job at being what they're supposed to be. They're committed to being good sinners. He said, the church, the Christians need to be as committed to what they're supposed to be. He said, he said, because if the church was doing their job, there would be more converted than corrupt. He said, if there was more converted than corrupt, all the rest of this would straighten out by itself. So we need to do our job. And Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that go thereon. Narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. We don't know if there's going to be a great ingather. I hope so. I hope so. You know, I was in the last one, the Jesus movement, in the early 70s. I saw it. I was in it. Babylon had taken over our country. My whole generation <clears throat> was taking drugs, 
pornography, it was, then it was real sex. Everybody, everywhere, you know. Then, you know, protests on campuses. The, the National Guard comes to Kent State with real ammunition and shoots down and kills college students on the campus. Racial tension, Black Panthers, Rat Brown, all of this stuff was going on. It's all back again. And all of those things gave birth to the Jesus movement. Everybody's dropping acid, everybody's stoned, everybody's listening to Ravi Shankar and the Beatles. And all of a sudden, like the Red Sea, Jesus steps in and he parts the ocean. And multitude after multitude of young people are gathered in the kingdom of God through the gospel. Let us see it again, Lord. Let us see it again. Important for you, study the scripture. Search it out for yourself. See if it's true. You know, you need to put tinder on your own fire. You need to have that, that fire burning in your own heart when you talk to friends or relatives or classmates, reasoning with them, taking the truth of Scripture and laying it aside of prophecies. This is what happened. This is what's going to happen. People are open right now. People have no hope. And if you say, well, here's what the Scripture says about Russia. Here's what the Scripture says about the Middle East. Here's what the Scripture says about the last days. Here's what the Scripture says about the church. Here's what the Scripture says about the tribulation. People are open. And some of them, thankfully, are going to go back and get a Bible and look to see if you're crazy or if it really says that there. That's more noble than to just blow you off or believe you without seeing it for themselves. But the endowment is upon us. The baton has been passed to us. It's our generation now. They're lost. They're hopeless. Turn on the news. They can't govern themselves. Man can't govern himself. Only Christ can do that when he returns. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Athens. We kind of live in Athens, so it's a good study for us. Father, we thank you for these things, Lord. We, we look at them and we pray, Lord, that we can, we're familiar with a lot of this. We go through, Lord, but to this evening, Lord, we, we believe as we study that your word is effectual, Lord, in us. And we do receive it as the word of God. We do believe it doesn't return void. It accomplishes Lord, we do believe that your word is truth and that it sanctifies us. And Lord, as we watch our brethren, as we watch Paul and Silas and Timothy and so Peter and Lord, these men and women that are the early part of our family spiritually, let us take to heart, Lord, the things that you would before. You haven't changed, Lord. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no swamp or no social media, no problem in the present that can forbid the work of your spirit and of your word in any way, Lord. And Lord, as we're here, all of us can think of a friend or a relative or a doctor or somebody that we see regular that we need to let the light shine when we're with them. We need to be salty, Lord. And not carnal, Lord. 
And we pray by your grace that would be stirring and happening in us, Lord. As we watch the news, Lord, let us be aware of where we're living in time. And we trust you to do that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the family of God here. We thank you, Lord, if, if nukes start going off, we got somewhere to come. And we can get incinerated with everybody we love, Lord. A puff of smoke into heaven, Lord. We're thankful. Uh, so, Lord, give us wisdom. Show us how to minister in the Ukraine, Lord, to the different circumstances that are going on there, Lord. Uh, let us be contagious, Lord, in so many ways. And, uh, Lord, uh, we know that if it was happening here, our brethren in the Ukraine would be praying for us and they'd be sending things here. Lord, we want to give, Lord. We want to see fruit, Lord. We want to see our brothers and sisters in heaven without tears, without sorrow, without death, without pain and fall into each other's arms, Lord. We pray you hear the church around this globe tonight praying over this turmoil, Lord. And that, remind you, you told us the fervent prayer of a righteous man, effectual and fervent prayer availeth much, Lord. So hear your people who lift this situation to you in the name of Jesus, your son, and move miraculously, Lord. We trust you to do that. We pray in your name. Amen.